The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, boys and girls. Isn't this a wonderful party? And do you know what kind of a party it is? From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. And this week, you can now buy my latest book, Words on the Move, out from Henry Holt, with a beautiful red cover and also some contents. Also, don't forget The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language, which is now out in paperback. I am your host for Lexicon Valley, and not just for the summer. I've enjoyed this so much that for the duration, I'm staying right here. And this week's episode will be another solo exploration of something language-related that we often don't have much time to think about in any real way, and yet is interesting for all kinds of reasons. This time out, what I've been thinking about is nursery rhymes. Have you ever noticed how often nursery rhymes are kind of jacked up? Things don't really rhyme. The grammar is off. You've spent your life thinking on a certain level that you know what it means, but you don't really. And don't worry, this isn't going to be like the Shakespeare show again. I'm not going to say we need to translate the nursery rhymes into modern English. But still, there's some lessons we can learn from how truly odd a lot of those glum and even rather violent little poems are in the linguistic sense. For example, here is the Peter Pan Records recording of one nursery rhyme that I grew up on. This was one of those weird little yellow plastic 78s. And no, I didn't keep it, but the wonders of the internet here that very recording is. I still get chills hearing it in all of its perfect 50s gloopiness, although I was born in the 60s, mind you. Here it goes. Bye, baby bunting. Daddy's gonna hunting. To get a little rabbit skin to wrap the baby bunting in. That dinging instrument, by the way, is a celeste. It's a weird little piano. I've always liked its sound. I'm actually going to say here, I once stole a celeste. A friend of mine and I needed a celeste for a production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And the band wouldn't lend us the celeste. And so one night we actually went with a rather large car. And we didn't steal it because we gave it back after a few days. I guess we borrowed it, maybe filched it. But in the night, there were two guys lifting a Celeste. I stole it, and I assume that the Rutgers University police will not be coming after me about it 31 years later. Anyway, did you ever wonder what bunting is? You, you hear that nursery rhyme all your life, but is it that stuff that they hang at political rallies? And what does it have to do with infancy? You know, what are they wrapping that kid in? Actually, what bunting meant was, frankly, Lil Fatty. So, no, you can't translate it because bye, little fatty, doesn't quite work. But that is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what these weird nursery rhymes can teach us. And so, for example, hickory dickory dock. It just flows right out of your mouth. It has a cute kind of sound. But really, what does it mean? And in case your memory needs a jog, here is a typical rendition of hickory dickory dock. Hickory dickory duck, the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one, the mouse ran down. Hickory dickory duck, hickory dickory duck, the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one, the mouse ran down. Hickory dickory duck, hickory dickory duck,
Hickory Dickory Dock. <laughs> Good old Hickory Dickory Dock, and it goes on and on and on. But really, what's Hickory Dickory Dock? Now, if you look it up, then very often you'll have some. Stuffy definition where somebody is saying, "Well, a hickory is a hard wood," but who cares? We know what hickory is, but what is dickory? <laughs> what does dock have to do with it? It's interesting what that actually is. Before English was brought to the island of Britain, there were other languages spoken there. They were the Celtic languages, not Celtic. That's sports. Celtic languages, and the ones that we've heard of are Welsh. And Irish, Irish Gaelic, for the most part, they are very, very different from European languages that most of us are familiar with. They're related to them technically, but they're quite different. And English was imposed on people who had grown up speaking basically an early form of Welsh. Now, what's interesting is that there are very few words in English that seem to trace to that Celtic language that was spoken there. It's one of the mysteries of contact linguistics. But it would be absolutely impossible that you have these millions of people speaking these languages, and that it would leave no trace in the vocabulary of the version of English that they spoke. And in fact, in the north of England and Scotland. For a very long time, there were what were called sheep counting numbers. These were these special numbers that sounded nothing like English numbers, and they weren't only used for counting sheep; they were used for games. And so, for example, in modern Welsh, four, five, and ten are pedwar, pimp, and deg. In one version of these counting numbers, those numbers were pedera, pump, and dig. So it's obvious that these numbers that rural people use for games and for counting sheep and for whatever were not just made up; they're remnants of what the numbers were in these Celtic languages. If you grow up speaking a language, often the numbers is something that's very deep seated. You spend your life being able to count more spontaneously in them. So that's what was going on. Now, what's interesting is that in those exact same numbers, eight, nine, and ten. Is Hevera Devera Dick? Sorry about that, but that's what the word for ten was. Hevera Devera Dick. Now, if you don't really know what you're saying because you don't speak early Welsh anymore, then it's pretty easy for that to start coming out as something that sounds familiar, like Hickory, and so you get Hickory Dickory Dock. Hevera Devera Dick. Hickory Dickory Dock. So that's what it is. It's the clock going eight, nine, ten, and you know maybe something hanging off of the long hand. So Hickory Dickory Dock is not about a hardwood or anything of the sort. That was counting. That was eight, nine, ten. You'd never know it now, but that's why you have that pleasing sequence of words. There's another example. If you say "eeny meeny miny mo," catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny meeny miny mo. Don't you feel like "eeny meeny miny mo" is some sort of counting? It just it feels like it, and it actually is. We can go back to those quote unquote. Sheep counting numbers. So, ana pena para petera. That's one, two, three, four. Ana pena. Now say that over and over again. It, and if you live for centuries, imagine how many times you could say it. Ana pena. Pretty soon it's going to be ana mena because p and m 
are both pronounced with the two lips. So, ain't a pain, ain't a mina, eeny, meeny, it's perfectly natural. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo is counting. It's one, two, three, four, vastly distorted from the numbers that the people used on the island of Britain before English was brought there. So, you've got this Celtic substrate that ends up being behind some of the words in nursery rhymes that feel so familiar to us until we sit and think. It's kind of like being told that you have a tongue in your mouth and you start thinking about this slimy thing sitting in there. What are things like hickory dickory duck and eeny meeny miny mo? They are Celtic. Also, by the way, I cannot leave this unsaid. Eeny meeny miny mo, catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go. Most people aren't given to catching tigers by the toe. And if you think about it, Tigers aren't really given to hollering. You know, a tiger would roar or probably just eat you. A tiger hollering, you would associate it with a person. And I want to be delicate here, but I'm sure some of you have heard it as eeny, meeny, miny, mo catch a tigger by the toe. And you can tell that A.A. A. Milne had very little to do with it. Tigger rhymes with something else that was actually what the word was. And it makes the hollering part make more sense. Just saying that there are many distortions over time in these nursery rhymes. Anyway, here's another example. Sound change can be significant in keeping the nursery rhymes from quite working today. So here's one everybody knows. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. And Jill came tumbling after. It's terrible. I mean, we're so used to it, but why doesn't it rhyme? Is that the best they could do? Water. After. Now, it's said that IQs were lower before about 1950, but people weren't that dumb. That's just a truly execrable rhyme. And it kind of makes you wonder, well, why, why couldn't they have come up with something else? And actually, what it is, is that there are many ways to pronounce after. And if you say after, imagine, for example, if you are British and you're saying after in your dialect, after is a word you say a lot. After a while, the F might drop out and then you get after. So, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. And there you go. Now, you don't have to reconstruct this because you can see it in dialect literature that there is after for after. And even over here on these shores, in Huckleberry Finn, Jim, the black character, says Otter for after. And Black English has its roots mainly in vernacular British dialects that we in America have little reason to ever hear or read about. So after can become otter, and that's why you have the water after rhyme today. We read it that way. That is not what sensible people were putting together when they were trying to make something that was pleasing and that would teach children what a rhyme is and help us pass the time in this veil of tears. And I should say, actually, that it's not as if I have always walked around with the dialect history of this particular word after in my brain. It's not really very interesting in itself. But I once was listening to two people who had grown up in Yorkshire, England, talking about the vernacular sorts of things that the old folks used to say. And one of the guys said that there was some sort of threat, and I forget what it was, but it was something like, 
I, if you don't ask me permission before, then my hand will be slapping you after, or something like that. And I don't remember him making it like a pirate, but it was he, it was this vernacular sounding person. Something about me hand will be slapping you after. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I've never heard after pronounced that way. But it makes that goddamn Jack and Jill thing make sense. So this is how you learn linguistic nuggets through listening to people saying random things and putting random things together. Sound change creates something else that's rather peculiar. Listen to this classic nursery rhyme. Why aren't you having a good time, little girl? I lost my sheep. That's too bad, child. What is your name? I'm Little Bo Peep. I've lost my sheep and don't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home Wagging their tails behind them There you go. So, Little Bo Peep. We're so used to it, but what kind of name is that? I've met people named Emily and Jocelyn, Francesca, Diana, but I've never met anybody whose name was Bo Peep. Nobody says, "Uh, this is Caroline and I'm Bo Peep. That's not a name. And so you wonder, well, what what's Bo Peep? You know, it has these two parts. Well, if you trace it back, it's peekaboo. You can say peekaboo. An alternate back in the day was peep boo. Now you just reverse that and you get boo peep. It's very interesting. And apparently peep boo or boo peep back in the day, back in the Elizabethan day was what you would play with a baby. It was the sort of <laughs> pee-pee sort of thing. There was even a rhyme that connected this boo-peep with sheep. So half England is not now, but sheep in every corner, they play bo-peep. So the sheep. Now, how it ended up being the name of a girl is not clear, but if you have a, a shepherdess and she's taking care of the sheep, giving them whatever they need. You can imagine that if the sheep are folkloristically known for engaging in this game of peekaboo, maybe that's something that sheep do, then pretty soon the woman might start being called Bo Peep. But notice this this toggling I'm doing between Bo Peep and Boo Peep, because really it was Peep Bo. And then little Bo Peep. So why are we saying why why am I saying peekaboo today? And the reason is because that O sound became ooh in modern English. And one way that you know it is another one of those tongue in your mouth things. Why is it that two O's means ooh? You know, we're so used to it to us. We see the two O's and it jumps off the pages and ooh. But really, shouldn't it be O? I mean, in what other language do you have two O's next to each other meaning ooh? It actually makes no sense. It's part of why English spelling is a horrible thing. And what happened is that what was pronounced O changed to ooh. And therefore, what is spelled food is now pronounced food and so on. But there are always things that get caught and don't change. And so Bo Peep has ended up staying the way it is because it's... Repeated so often, it becomes deeply established. And so we say Bo Peep instead of Boo Peep while we say Peekaboo, etc. It's kind of like the word one. Do you ever think about the fact that only has one in it? It's onely, but we don't say onely. One originally was pronounced own, 
and and only it still is, it moved on all by itself to one. So that's what's going on with Little Bo Peep. It's basically Little little Peekaboo. And so that can help you enjoy that strangely vapid nursery rhyme more in the future. Now, here is something else that the nursery rhymes can teach us. And that is that things that feel wrong often end up becoming what is standard. We linguists are always saying that about language as we experience it now. And it was also true in the past. And so, for example, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot, nine days old. Peas porridge. Now, we just say it. We're used to it. It feels kind of good to say it. But why is it peas porridge? Peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot nine days old. It's kind of an odd way of putting it. We don't talk about apples pie. And so why is it peas porridge instead of pea porridge? And there's a part of us, I think, today that thinks that maybe it was something like please porridge hot because we're trying to make it make some kind of sense. But no, peas was originally a word you could use for just one pea. Peace meant a pea or peas, just like today corn can mean one of them or all of it. Peace was a substance. So you can have some corn, some rice, some peace. Now, because S is the plural marker, there was a natural sense that peace must be plural and that there must be a such thing as a single P. That was a mistake then, because the single thing was a piece. But it was so tempting to think that there was a such thing as a pea that pretty soon, well, there was. And there could be no more complaint about it. There are words like that. Cherry started that way. Cherry started out as cherries because it was from French cerise. And there was no such thing as a cherry. That was a mistake. But, well, you know, we're past it now. Or even today... When you give kudos to people, do you think of that as plural, as if you could give them three or four kudos? Actually, that's a singular word. It's from Greek for glory or fame. You give somebody kudos like you would give somebody corn or water or air. There's technically no such thing as a kudo. But we're beginning to think so. I definitely think so. You can have one kudo or several kudos. And so it's just changing. Peas porridge hot is an example of something like that before the change happened. And so for us, it would be pea porridge hot, not peas porridge hot. So these are the sorts of things that you can learn. I know some of you are waiting for Ring Around the Rosie and the idea that actually it's about the Black Plague. Apparently, that's not actually true. The whole rosy rash thing is a bit of a stretch. And ashes, ashes, we all fall down. The ashes seems to be a misrendering of the British version, which was at to chew, which was their version of a sneeze. But ashes just comes from that. It doesn't have anything to do with, for example, spreading ashes on yourself to get rid of the Black Plague. And the at to chew wasn't much like the Black Plague. It isn't the sort of disease where you find yourself sneezing or that being one of the main things. People who got the plague weren't saying, oh, dear, I'm feeling a little bit rosaceous. And <laughs> that wasn't what the plague was like. And the falling that little British kids used to do apparently was apparently a nice little curtsy. It wasn't an imitation of falling down and becoming a corpse. And so Ring Around the Rosie is an athletic little ringy game. It wasn't 
about getting the Black Plague. Tell us your thoughts about the show. I, for one, have thoroughly enjoyed the thoughts that I have gotten, especially on the Backshift episode. And actually, I want to share a wonderful example of the Backshift having not happened in the recent past, which comes to us from Tim Shevchik. Thank you, Tim. This is 1995. And somebody is talking about this thing that we now know as the interwebs. Listen to this person talking and listen to a word that now has a backshift and we don't even imagine that it could have ever been anything different. But you could have just known that it would have been pronounced this way in 1995. Right now, no one is entirely certain just how many individuals or businesses have set up home pages on the web. Home page. Isn't that great? You just know that that is the way it had to have been said. And now we say homepage because, goodness gracious, that certainly is a thing. And also, before we go, I want to mention something that somebody wrote in very gracious spirit. Apparently, I said that William Powell and Myrna Loy are laying rather than lying down. And that is a misuse, if you want to call it that, of what the distinction is supposed to be between lie and lay. What's interesting and also shows why we might need to let it go is that that distinction where you have one vowel change, lie, lay, and that is distinguishing doing something as opposed to causing the thing to be done is not something that we can perceive as regular in the language because the vowel changes have gone so far and the words are different in different ways. And so, for example, did you know that drink and drench started that way, too, that if you drench something, you're making somebody drink or bear versus born cling and clench? There's a series of pairs of that kind where you'd never really think of it. Lie and lay has for various reasons gotten more attention than many of the others. However, I was interested to hear that I had made what Miss Grundy would have considered a grammatical error. I am sure I make plenty. Anyway, it made me interested to share that there are other pairs like that. Just fun stuff. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Efim Shapiro. I'm John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. Sleep, baby, sleep. Thy father guards the sheep. Thy mother shakes the dreamland tree, and from it fall sweet dreams for thee. Sleep, baby, sleep.